The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, Thaddeus Stevens, a defiant man who challenged four different presidents of the Civil War era. Fillmore, Buchanan, Lincoln, and Douglas, they were all forced to deal with this headstrong political heavyweight bargaining and negotiating to make positive change in a very difficult time. It's an important story of how political influence from Congress can and should affect change on Capitol Hill, the White House, and beyond. The chief instigator of the chief executive, Thaddeus Stevens, next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Joining us for this discussion about Thaddeus Stevens is best-selling author Bruce Levine. He's written four books on the Civil War era, including two that have been recognized nationally as the best of the best in nonfiction. He's just published a brand new book titled Thaddeus Stevens, Civil War Revolutionary, Fighter for Racial Justice. Bruce, we love the presidency here at American POTUS, and we're looking forward to hearing more about this fascinating congressman who worked for and against different presidents. Well said. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much, Bruce, for being with us. Uh, You know, above all else, Stevens is remembered as a champion of freedom and equality. His maiden speech in the House seems like a real burn burner. He condemned the whole government as despotism for accepting slavery in the South. How did he come to such strong and, for his time, advanced views on slavery? And did those views change over time? Well, he attributes the core of his views to the fact that he was born into poverty. And he says that that gave him an appreciation of the lot of the downtrodden in general. But I think, and I I think that's true, although, of course, not everybody born into poverty reaches the political conclusions that Thaddeus Stevens did. He was also born into a state with a very radical democratic political tradition. Vermont was the scene of major struggle by small farmers against the attempt by New York to impose a series of uh, land titles that would have preempted those of small farmers, uh, mostly from New England, uh, fighting against uh, New York State, where huge owners or owners of huge manors had tremendous political influence and used it against their tenants. Uh, So this was a state that developed a very strong democratic, small d, political tradition, and also uh, fought hard for one of the most democratic forms of self-government in the union, an extremely democratic state constitution. A state constitution, by the way, the first in the U.S. to denounce slavery, specifically. So Thaddeus Stevens is not only born, but also raised in the political atmosphere created by these facts. 
So as he goes into his public career, though, he became a member of the Anti-Masonic Party. And I think you gave the best description of that party I've ever read. Could you tell our listeners a bit about what drove the creation of the Anti-Masonic Party and how it attracted men like Stevens, uh, future President Phil Moore, and past President John Quincy Adams? It's a party that looks so strange in retrospect, a party by name and in substance devoted to fighting against the order of the Masons. And if you look at the Masons today, it's hard to figure out why a party would organize itself on that basis. But the Masonic order at that time was a secretive organization of people who secretly pledged to uh, defer to one another and to aid one another in all walks of life, including politics, at the expense of all others. And people like those you just mentioned, therefore saw the Masons, most of whom were quite well-to-do, by the way, as a potential source of political subversion and an infringement on the functioning of a democratic republic. Interesting. Now, you said early on, you were talking about Stevens being born into poverty and that giving him some sympathy for the lot of of, of the African-Americans in the South, the slaves in the South during his youth. Why didn't he extend that? I know early on in his career, though, he was kind of anti-immigrant, was he not? Why, why did that sympathy not extend to immigrants early on in his career? Having been born and raised in Vermont, he probably imbibed some of the New England Protestant attitude toward Catholicism in that era. They looked upon the Catholic Church as anti-democratic and opposed to Republican government. It needs saying that the papacy in those days issued a series of bulls that gave substance to those fears. But Vermont, for example, though it promulgates a strong religious freedom, does so for all denominations of Protestantism, not for Catholicism. And I think Stevens is heir to that. His family is Baptist and uh, strong Baptist believers. And so... Stevens has no predilection in favor of rights for Catholics. And many, many of the immigrants of that day were indeed Catholics from Ireland and uh, Western Germany. But he also probably looked upon the immigrants with a baleful eye because they tended to support his political opponents, people who became the Democratic Party. The immigrants flocked to the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party was a lot better toward them than were the other political parties of the day. And the immigrants also tended, although not universally, to be impoverished. And while Stevens looks back to his own poverty as an inspiration for his egalitarianism, he's also worried, as were many people from his political tradition, about the existence of propertyless people and the possibility that they would be manipulated politically by people of greater wealth, especially in the cities, where, again, many of the immigrants tended to congregate. And he changes on that as his career advances. Is that right? By 1860, he's certainly far less explicit in his anti-immigrant stance. He never was vociferously anti-immigrant. And I have to say that I suspect that at least a part of his affinity for the nativist movement was political opportunism. 
this was a powerful political force, and Stevens was probably trying to figure out a way to take advantage of that without necessarily himself enunciating or fighting very hard for nativist causes. But over the course of time, Stevens' democratic impulses come to prevail over others in his own worldview. And so he winds up defending Chinese immigrants in California against the persecution that they are suffering, suffering, by the way, at times from the Republican Party, to which, of course, he eventually uh, belongs. So in 1850, as we're moving towards civil war, we're in a major crisis. And there's the compromise of 1850 with Clay and Douglas, President Fillmore. But Stevens opposed that compromise. What did he see that was wrong with it? And what were the options that he instead wanted to uh, to implement? Well, the Compromise of 1850, which, by the way, Abraham Lincoln supported and defended, was an attempt to resolve a crisis that seemed to threaten disruption of the Union, a rupture of the Union right then, which is why people like Lincoln supported it. Stevens opposed it on two grounds. First of all, it allowed the spread of slavery into some of the territories just taken from Mexico during the war with Mexico, and Stevens was adamantly opposed to the expansion of slavery. And second, the Compromise of 1850 also included the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which made it easier for slave owners in the South to recapture African Americans who had succeeded in escaping into the free states of the North. And Stevens strongly opposed that and so refused to try to save the Union at the expense of major retreats on the subject of slavery. If you'd like to know more about Bruce Levine's new book about Thaddeus Stevens, click on over to AmericanPotus.com. We have a resource section there with links to the book and more information on the author. And while you're there, let us know about any other authors or books that you think would make for an interesting future episode. Thanks for listening to American POTUS. So Stevens and Lincoln did find themselves on the same side a few years later with the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which they both very much opposed. The, that act was like a bomb thrown on the national scene, and it drew both Lincoln and Stevens back into the political world. Could you tell us how those two events affected and inspired Thaddeus Stevens? Well, the Kansas-Nebraska Act is introduced by Stephen Douglas to accelerate white settlement of what was left of the Louisiana Purchase, which was a great deal of land. And the Kansas-Nebraska Act, in order to obtain support from Southern senators and congressmen, nullifies the Compromise of 1820, which had excluded slavery from all portions of the Louisiana Purchase north of the 36-degree, 30-minute latitude line. Southern congressmen and senators have made clear they would not support this new law unless it did away with that uh, exclusion of slavery. And so Douglas, who doesn't care about slavery and says that repeatedly, uh, reintroduces this nullification 
of the 1820 Compromise. And that means that slavery now may very well come into what become Kansas and Nebraska. Uh, and that really is the kickoff of the modern, well, not the modern Republican Party, but of the 19th century Republican Party, because it seems to prove not only that the Democratic Party of its day and Southern politicians are determined still to spread slavery, but that no compromise made with them can be counted upon to endure, that they will break their word, and that they will do anything necessary to advance the spread of slavery. Well, whatever Lincoln thought about the Compromise of 1850, he was not about to support this. And there's an enormous movement blows up in 1854 in the North, opposed to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. And that provides the basis for what becomes the Republican Party. The death knell of the Whigs, and just two years later, you have your first Republican presidential nominee in Fremont. Exactly. So very quick. And I, th I think you also asked about the Dred Scott oh, decision. Oh, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Dred Scott decision is a Supreme Court decision that basically says that no black person has any rights in the United States that any white person is required to respect. And that's not obiter dicta. That's in the uh, major uh, statement. That's in the decision itself. Well, Stevens will have no part of that, and neither will Lincoln. Lincoln, in fact, says that uh, it's uh, not at all clear that this is a decision that itself needs to be respected, that it's in violation of his understanding of what the Constitution says, and also it's bad history, uh, because uh, African Americans had long had widely recognized rights in many parts of the country. And Stevens had fought for the rights of free blacks in the state of Pennsylvania decades earlier to vote and had refused to endorse the uh, revision of the state's constitution at that time when it specifically did exclude black men from the suffrage. So the Dred Scott decision is a slap in the face to his most fundamental and long-held views. So we descend into civil war, Lincoln is elected, state starts to secede. I've always found the period between Lincoln's election and his inauguration as being a very fascinating period. Tell us about Stevens' important actions during that tense time. Well, Stevens campaigns hard for the Republican candidate and for the Republican Party. But he's also worried uh, once the election takes place, that members of that party are going to fold. There's tremendous pressure being placed on the Republicans, Lincoln included, to back away from the platform upon which they had just won the election, to back away from their determination to prevent the spread of slavery into the territories and to ban slavery from the territories. And Stevens is determined that the party stick to that platform and is alarmed at all sorts of signals that are being given out by other members of the Republican Party that perhaps they will accede to those compromise pressures. Signals 
by the way, also coming from Lincoln's Secretary of State designate, William Seward, who says on more than one occasion that he's willing to beat a retreat for the sake of national unity. But not only Seward, other uh, particularly uh, Republicans in Pennsylvania, uh, Stevens' uh, adoptive state are saying similar things. So he's fighting hard against compromise. And from his point of view, and I think ours, he's fortunately successful in resisting compromise. But in so doing, he helps to bring about, or at least to accelerate, the drive toward secession. Because, of course, uh, the bone in contention is once again the question of slavery. And it is uh, in defense of slavery that secession occurs. Well, as you know, South Carolina decides that since it's out of the Union, the Union has no right to maintain any fortifications within its territory or within its coastal waters and winds up firing upon Fort Sumter. President of the United States is Buchanan. Buchanan says, A, you don't have the right to secede. B, we don't have the right to stop you from seceding. The Constitution gives us no right to prevent the destruction of the Union. And the one lame thing that uh, Buchanan does do is send a, an unarmed merchant vessel down to the fort prior to its being uh, fired upon, and South Carolina guns open up on it. The ship simply turns around and goes back up north, and Buchanan does nothing about it. And Stevens is livid over this and denounces Buchanan in no uncertain terms for his what, what uh, Stevens sees as cowardice. We're having a, an author on, and not too long, uh, talking to us about President Buchanan. I'm looking forward to that discussion for sure. I, I always found it interesting, too, that Abraham Lincoln, when you see all the stress he went through during his presidency, said that the most stressful period for him was figuring out how to approach Sumter, what to do at the very beginning. He had no honeymoon when he went into office because right. that issue was before him. Right. And imagine the stress. I just add one thing uh, in answer to your question about what uh, Stevens was doing in this era. He gives a speech on the subject of secession. And he says, in a warning to those states that are declaring themselves out of the Union, don't think that you can go out now and then use your withdrawal as a bargaining chip with which to come back in in a way that strengthens slavery. On the contrary, you're leaving the Union. You're leaving the Union now is going to strengthen anti-slavery sentiment within what's left of the Union and is going to make it even more dangerous for you uh, mm -hmm. as a result. Yeah. And in, of course, he anticipates a good deal of what is ahead. Yeah, he was very correct. Our guest author talks about the contentious relationship with President Andrew Johnson in just a moment. But first, we encourage you to visit AmericanPotus.com for more information on Bruce Levine's fascinating new book on Thaddeus Stevens. And be sure to like or follow us on Facebook and Twitter so you'll be up to date on future episodes and announcements. 
So let's put Stevens side by side for a moment with President Lincoln. How did they agree or disagree at various times of the war on the fundamental issue of the future of slavery? Lincoln does not look upon the war as an instrument with which to abolish slavery, at least at the beginning of the war. There's no question in my mind, and I think in the mind of any good historian, that Lincoln hates slavery, has long hated slavery, has long believed, as he will eventually say, that if slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. Nonetheless, he does not see the war as the way to do away with slavery. What he wants to do is bring the Union back together again as quickly, as expeditiously, and as bloodlessly as possible so that his party can get back to the work of making the Union uncomfortable for slavery so that slavery, the slave states will eventually agree to do away with it themselves, gradually, peacefully, and with compensation to the slave owners. That's not Thaddeus Stevens' point of view. Thaddeus Stevens sees the war as an opportunity to abolish slavery promptly and without compensation, and uh, to do it uh, without uh, any further ado. And so he's extremely critical of Lincoln's hesitations on this subject and makes his criticism, as he always does, clearly known and clearly understood. Lincoln also has no intention of taking another step that Stevens believes in, which is bringing African-American men into what were then still lily-white U.S. armies. And basically what Stephen's saying is, and here he seconds the words of Frederick Douglass, the former slave and abolitionist leader, that the inexorable logic of events, the inexorable logic of this situation is, slavery is the strength of the Confederacy. The only way to defeat the Confederacy is to take that strength away from them. We need, not only for moral reasons, but for military reasons, to emancipate the slaves who are working or being made to work in support of the Confederate war effort. And then he goes further and says, in fact, we need to emancipate all the slaves in the Confederacy. And eventually he goes further still and does so long before Lincoln, and says, we need a constitutional amendment that will abolish slavery throughout the United States. And he calls for that a year before Lincoln finally endorses that idea. So Lincoln's always a, a bit behind, but more methodical. Lincoln always had a, um, an approach where he looked at what his rights were under the Constitution as president. I believe that always, he approached it from a more perhaps legalistic viewpoint of what he could and could not do as president. But then he caught up with Stevens. It's interesting, like you say, he's always about a year behind in terms of being, you know, pulling the trigger essentially on on these on these important measures, but being more conservative about it. Yes, I think, you know, one of the considerations that that uh, is holding Lincoln back is he believes incorrectly as many other northerners believe that the act of secession is the act of a minority of the white South, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that the majority of the white South is really loyal at heart. Uh, and that includes slaveholders in that view. And that if we can only fight this war 
without interfering with slavery any more than we absolutely have to, we can get this majority of Southern whites to reassert themselves and force their states back into the Union. And of course, it's inaccurate. And finally, by the middle of 1862, Lincoln sees that it's a complete misunderstanding. And he also sees that in uh, trying to hold on to the border states, the four slave states that were still in the Union, by again holding back from attacking slavery in the Confederacy, he's made a mistake there too. And he says that uh, following that pressure from the border states has been the most important thing holding him back from doing what needed to be done in this war. He says this in two separate letters written in the summer of 1862. Do you think perhaps maybe that was a correct assessment in 1861 at the beginning, uh, particularly with Kentucky? He said, if we lose Kentucky, we lose it all. It, perhaps early on in the conflict, it was more important than than later. That's a damn good question. And I don't have... <laughs> I, I try to have, have those, Bruce. I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good question. Um, I think it was important to hold on to Kentucky, just physically speaking, right? Uh, if Kentucky had joined the Confederacy from the start, it would have moved the line of battle considerably northward. And so holding on to Kentucky accomplished a great deal. I'm not sure that depriving himself of the anti-slavery weapons uh, would have made it a good bargain, trying to trade that for keeping Kentucky in the Union. It meant that the Union doesn't get these uh, almost 200,000 eventually black soldiers until later in the war. And that in and of itself is a uh, hobbling factor. Reconstruction is an extraordinarily complicated topic. You sum it up by saying that moderates, Republican moderates, saw Reconstruction as a problem to be solved and radicals saw it as an opportunity to be taken as a second American revolution. Can you summarize for us how those approaches manifested in competing proposals within the party and how those came together over time? Well, as you say, Alan, it is a complex story, and it takes me quite a few pages in the book to lay that complexity out. To summarize, and at the risk of oversimplifying, let me just put it this way. Thaddeus Stevens believes that these states are, as they say they are, out of the Union. And when the war is over, he says they are still out of the Union. They have deprived themselves of the rights of states. And they have enabled us by what he refers to as the laws of law of nations to treat them as simultaneously traitors and as enemy aliens and therefore not necessarily restore them to full political rights as states, but instead to hold them in the status of territories governed by the federal government. He wants to do that because he fears that to do otherwise, to give them political rights again, both at the local, state, and national level, will mean everything that has been accomplished by the Civil War, including the abolition of slavery, will be lost because the South will come back under the banner of the Democratic Party, fuse with the northern wing of the Democratic Party, and then control both Congress and the presidency and restore slavery and face the country all over again 
with the same crisis that led to civil war in the first place. The moderate majority in the Republican Party agrees with Abraham Lincoln, however, that the states of the Confederacy never actually left the Union uh, because the Constitution didn't allow them to leave the Union. Stevens considers that ludicrous, uh, equivalent to saying that since there's a law against murder, murder doesn't happen. He says, of course, there's the Constitution doesn't allow them to leave, but they have left. <laughs> they have palpably left, and that's why we are warring against them. And what they want to do, what the moderates want to do, is to cement the destruction of slavery. They don't want to retreat on that. They want to make sure that the uh, emancipated African Americans have at least some basic civil rights. And then they want to bring those southern states back into the Union with full rights as quickly as they possibly can and get on with other business. And Stevens adamantly opposes that and points uh, to that as a continuation of the North's weak need uh, way of dealing with the slave states prior to the Civil War and warns that it will bring about serious negative consequences. Now, one man the radical Republicans had to fight as they tried to proceed with Reconstruction was President Andrew Johnson, a Tennessean who, frankly, is a very difficult man to study. He he stayed loyal to the Union during the Civil War, so you have to give him credit for that. He ended up unexpectedly in the White House, but once there, supported the elite of the South as they instituted the Black Codes tried to stymie the efforts of Stevens and his colleagues all along the way. So can you describe that fight back and forth? And how did that fight play into the impeachment of Johnson in 1868? Well, as you say, Johnson was a loyal Tennessean. He opposed secession. And on that basis, wins Lincoln's approval. So Lincoln makes him the war governor of Tennessee once uh, uh, the Union reconquers at least part of it, and then allows for, uh, for the inclusion of uh, Andrew Johnson on his ticket in 1864 in hopes of broadening the political base of the Republican Party, which then calls itself the Union Party in 1864. But Andrew Johnson was a thoroughgoing racist. And while he comes to accept abolition of slavery as a necessary war measure, that's as far as he's prepared to go uh, in uh, terms of African-American rights. And although he makes some noises at the beginning of his presidency that give Republicans reason to think that he's going to be hard on the Southern elite after the war, it quickly becomes clear that on the contrary, He's about to help the Southern elite to reimpose white supremacy in the states of the now defeated Confederacy and uh, trample on the rights of African Americans and again restore to the Democratic Party control of the federal government, not only of the Southern state governments. And so, in pursuit of that, as you say, Andrew Johnson. Uh, tries to reconstitute the uh, southern state governments as quickly as possible. When those southern state governments pass laws that you referred to, the Black Codes, 
that strip African-Americans of most of the rights of white citizens, Johnson barely makes a peep, does nothing to stop them. And on the contrary, turns to Congress and says, basically, for very long, well, Reconstruction's over. We have accomplished everything that we need to accomplish. See, the rights that African-Americans need have been consecrated. And now it's time to bring all these states back into full standing. Along the way, he vetoes the Civil Rights Act, which was intended to grant citizenship finally to African-Americans and finally overturn the Dred Scott decision. He vetoes the attempt to extend the life of the Freedmen's Bureau, which was doing at least something to try to assist these recently emancipated slaves to gain their feet. And he then proceeds, even after the Republican majority passes a Reconstruction law that gives the U.S. Army the right to defend the rights of African Americans in the South, Johnson proceeds to start removing one general after another from one part of the South when that general collides with representatives of the white elite and puts in their place much more conciliatory figures. Well, this plus the growing scale of white supremacist terror that is being inflicted upon African Americans in the South convinces Stevens rather early along with a handful of other radical Republicans, that Andrew Johnson has got to go. And the same factors finally push even most, but not all, uh, moderate Republicans to agree, at least in the House of Representatives, that it's time to impeach Andrew Johnson. And they do so. And come very close to conviction in the Senate, if I remember correctly. They come within one vote. Mm-hmm. of success in the Senate, which was quite an achievement. Yes. But the cause is lost because a handful of Republican moderates vote to acquit Andrew Johnson and thereby leave Johnson in office. Now, the, the Civil Rights Act you alluded to that Johnson vetoed, they later pass it over his veto, do they not? Is that, am I That's correct right. in that? And, yes. but, but I think then Stevens and others recognize that the 14th Amendment essentially is necessary to give permanence to that. Is that exactly. Am I that correctly? You're absolutely right. The Civil Rights Act created what we call birthright citizenship, that anyone born in or naturalized into the United States is a citizen of the United States. So there goes the Dred Scott decision. It declares equality before the law for all citizens, specifically, and then it provides that the federal government will have the responsibility of punishing those who violate these rights. But just as you say, a law passed by Congress, even a law that's passed over the veto of a president, can still be rescinded by a later session of Congress or potentially ruled unconstitutional by a hostile Supreme Court. And so the Republican Party seeks, and Stevens, once again in the vanguard, seeks to place these rights in the Constitution itself, and that is the birth of the 14th Amendment. Now, I was a, a bit surprised that Stevens, who usually is ahead of others, was slow in accepting black suffrage. Why, why was he slow in advocating that right for the freedmen? Not because, of course, he opposed the right of black people to vote on principle. 
since he'd staked out uh, his position on that subject 30 to 40 years earlier in Pennsylvania, when, as I mentioned earlier, he had fought hard to guarantee the right to vote for black people, black men at least, in Pennsylvania. But Stevens is educated in a school of small r Republican thought, according to which the only good citizen is a citizen with property. And a citizen without, citizen with too much property is going to corrupt the system. That is, the rich elite is going to corrupt the system, but the impoverished population is going to become putty in the hands of that elite. So Stevens is afraid that this impoverished class of people may be compelled to use their votes in support of reactionary causes because of economic pressure from the landowners who could uh, withhold employment from them. And so that's one of the reasons why he's so anxious to prevent these states from coming back into the union with full rights and wishes instead to keep the federal government in control of them. When Stevens finds that he can't keep the returning rebel states in the position of territories, the only thing he can do at that point is depend upon a black electorate in the South to prevent the rise once again of neo-Confederate Democrats. And given his belief that only citizens with at least a minimum of property can be counted upon to act in their own self-interest and avoid economic intimidation, at that point, Thaddeus Stevens begins to press hard for seizing the estates of the slaveholder aristocracy and divide it into small farms and give those farms free of charge to the former slaves. So Stevens passes away in 1868. The 15th Amendment, which guaranteed suffrage for all male citizens, was passed early the next year. Did he have any role in the creation of the 15th Amendment before he, before he passed away? He's not directly involved in drawing it up. He's calling for such an amendment, however before his death. He takes the position that the 14th Amendment that punishes states that deny the vote to black men has thereby implicitly acknowledged that the right to vote is a right of citizenship. And therefore, and on that ground says, federal government needs to make this more explicit and do so in a new constitutional amendment. And when, in 1864, the Republican Party fails to include a call for such an amendment in its electoral platform, he's very unhappy and makes, again, because he's Thaddeus Stevens, makes his unhappiness known. He was not shines in sharing his beliefs. Indeed. Thank (laughs) heavens. (laughs) Right. That's right. Well, Bruce, it's time for us to get into the personal side of Thaddeus with a few perhaps unusual questions. Here we go. From all the portraits, paintings, and writings about the man, he seemed to be a very serious guy. Did he do anything for fun? Did he have any hobbies? He liked to gamble. And at an earlier stage in his life, he was known to take a drink or two. 
It was said also that he was something of a sexual libertine. And in fact, one of his abolitionist allies, a Protestant minister, says of him at that stage that he's one of those people who fights for God's causes without necessarily observing all of God's rules in his personal <laughs> life. I can't imagine, though, playing a poker game with Stevens, with him drinking a bit and him getting mad at you. That, that'd be a very scary proposition. It's also hard to imagine him keeping a poker face, isn't it? That's right. That's right. Uh, next up, he never married or had any children. But what was his family life like? What was his personal life? He adored his mother. And in this fact, reciprocated an adoration that she had felt and shown to him. He was close to his brothers. He was close to a nephew and did what he could to uh, assure all of them uh, the physical comfort that his own considerable wealth could help to make possible. He visited his mother as often as he could. He bought her a farm and felt great satisfaction in doing so. And throughout his life, clearly considered family an important factor in that life. You know, when I think of Thaddeus Stevens, I can't help but think of Tommy Lee Jones's portrayal of him in the 2012 hit movie, Lincoln. What did you think of it? Did the actor capture him accurately? Well, I'm a huge Tommy Lee Jones fan in general. And I think he does a very good job of uh, capturing the persona of Thaddeus Stevens here. Although it is a little odd to hear uh, a Texas accent coming out of the mouth of a man born in Vermont. <laughs> Still, I, I, it's a powerful performance. Um, and I think it's an effective performance. I th the fault I find is in the script. The script makes Thaddeus Stevens seem as much of a problem for bringing about abolition as an ally in doing so. Lincoln has to talk him out of his apparent, extremely and excessively radical egalitarianism in order to get abolition passed. You never know that Stephen is among those people who's calling for a 13th Amendment long before Abraham Lincoln endorses the idea. Um, you never know that the position that's depicted in the movie as a concession on Stevens' part, saying on the floor of the House, I'm not necessarily in favor of equality uh, in all walks of life, but I am insistent upon equal rights before the law. You never know that that's actually a radical position, not a compromise position to be taken. So I think the film as a whole is a lot weaker than Tommy Lee Jones' individual depiction of the persona of Thaddeus Stevens. This is why you can't depend on Hollywood for accurate history. You need to read Bruce's book That's for right. accurate history. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Bruce, Bruce, finally, do you have a favorite quote or moment from all of his interactions with the presidents he's worked with? Any favorite quotes or interactions? When James Buchanan refuses to try to keep the Confederacy within the Union, and when he fails to respond even to the armed attack on a, an American vessel seeking to reinforce an American fort, 
in what he himself regards as American territory. You can imagine Thaddeus Stevens being apoplectic (laughs) over this. And he says of Buchanan, these idiotic words coming from the mouth of a man who throughout his life has been a slave of slavery. I like that. I think Thaddeus Stevens was good at turning a phrase. Oh, very much so. And when he says that this president is a very traitor. Mm. I like that moment too. Uh, Bruce, where can, where can people learn more about your work and, and what's next for you? They can learn more about my work, of course, by reading the book. Yes, right, of course. And <laughs> my last book it. was about the Civil War as a whole, and it was called The Fall of the House of Dixie. Uh, so you can get a more panoramic view there. And as for what's next, I'm not sure. I'm still in search of a next project. Well, we look forward to whatever that is. Thank you so much for joining us on American POTUS. I've really enjoyed our discussion. So have I, and thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. Graphic designed by the Thought Bureau and original music scored by Jonathan Clark Music. If you have any questions or comments on this episode or suggestions for future topics, send us a note at AmericanPOTUS.com or stop by our social pages on Facebook or Twitter. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review on the podcast player you're listening to the show on right now. We appreciate it. Finally, it's our last word from Thaddeus Stevens, quote, I wished that I were the owner of every Southern slave that I might cast off the shackles from their limbs and witness the rapture which would excite them in the first dance of their freedom.